I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about sports betting, shackling, the new RBG documentary, and we'll interview SCOTUS blog's Amy Howe. The Supreme Court issued five opinions earlier this week, so they are slowly making headway in the 30 or so cases that are outstanding. We are going to quickly run through those opinions. So first up was Murphy versus NCAA, which was probably the biggest decision of the week. This is the sports betting case. The Supreme Court struck down a federal law that prevented states from legalizing sports betting. The court ruled that the law which prevented states from passing new laws or repealing old laws with the goal of keeping sports betting illegal in most states uh, violates the 10th Amendment. So the the opinion was a 7-2 opinion with Justice Stephen Breyer joining all but one part of the majority, and that dealt with a severability issue. Justice Ginsburg wrote a dissent, which was joined by Sotomayor and in part by Breyer. So uh, writing for the majority, Justice Alito explained that the 10th Amendment of the Constitution withheld from Congress the power to issue orders directly to the states. So what's known as the anti-commandeering doctrine, uh, this says that Congress can can take a carrot or stick approach to encourage the states to enact federal priorities. But Congress cannot force state governments to pass laws with Congress's preferred policies. Alito wrote that a more direct affront to state sovereignty is not easy to imagine. So this decision gives the green light to the dozen or so states that were already considering legalizing sports betting. And there's also been some speculation about what impact this could have beyond the sports world, particularly in the legal battle between the Trump administration and sanctuary cities where the 10th Amendment is uh, is a big issue. Next up is Byrd versus United States. This case asks the question, does a driver have a reasonable expectation of privacy in a rental car When he has the renter's permission to drive the car, but is not listed as an authorized driver on the rental agreement. In an unanimous opinion written by Justice Kennedy, the Supreme Court said yes. So in this case, Reed rented a car in New Jersey for Byrd, who was not listed on the rental agreement as a driver. Byrd was stopped by state troopers for a traffic violation, and they discovered that Byrd had prior drug and weapons convictions, and they searched the rental car, telling Byrd they didn't need his permission because he was not an authorized driver. And Byrd just happened to have some body armor and 49 bricks of heroin in his trunk. run-of-the-mill stuff you have in your trunk. (laughs) Yeah. So the lower court said, hey, you're not listed on the rental agreement, so you have no reasonable expectation of privacy, and the search was constitutional. But the Supreme Court disagreed holding that the mere fact that the driver in lawful possession or control of the rental car is not listed on the agreement will not automatically defeat his reasonable expectation of privacy. And they said that the expectation of privacy should not differ depending on whether the car is rented or owned by someone other than the person currently possessing it. And then the court remanded the case to the Third Circuit to decide some other issues Um, including to determine the validity of the government's argument that someone who intentionally uses a third party to get a rental car for the purpose of committing a crime is in no better situation than a car thief who has no expectation of privacy. Uh, Justice Thomas concurred, joined by Justice Gorsuch, in in typical Thomas fashion, (laughs) expressing his serious doubts about the reasonable expectation of privacy test 
from Katz versus United States, which is from 1967. Next up, the court decided McCoy versus Louisiana, and the court overturned a Louisiana inmate's death sentence because at trial, his lawyer admitted his guilt to the jury as a strategy in order to avoid the death penalty. That strategy clearly failed. And in an opinion by Justice Ginsburg, the court held that the Constitution gives a criminal defendant the right to make decisions about his defense and prohibits a defense lawyer from going against his client's wishes. The court remanded for a new trial. Justice Alito dissented, joined by Thomas and Gorsuch, explaining that, quote, the right the court now discovers is likely to appear only rarely. And because the present case is so unique, it is hard to see how it meets our stated criteria for granting review. Now, it sounds like the evidence was pretty overwhelming that the defendant killed several members of his estranged wife's family. So we will see what happens in the new trial. And then next was Dada versus United States. This was a unanimous decision written by Justice Breyer. Justice Gorsuch was recused from the case because he was on the appeals court panel that heard oral argument at the Tenth Circuit. So the Supreme Court ruled against a criminal defendant in a drug conspiracy case. The defendant sought to suppress evidence collected under a wiretap order that authorized surveillance outside the territorial jurisdiction of the judge who issued the wiretap order. And then finally, we have United States versus Sanchez Gomez, uh, which is the shackling case that we've talked about. So shackling is back. (laughs) And in a unanimous decision written by the chief, The court held that a challenge to the Southern District of California's shackling policy was moot. So at the request of the U.S. Marshal, the district court adopted a policy allowing most in-custody defendants in court for non-jury pretrial proceedings to be fully restrained and shackled. And four criminal defendants challenged this policy as unconstitutional. Despite the fact that each of the defendants' underlying criminal cases had ended, the Ninth Circuit held their claims were a functional class action and were not moot under the Supreme Court's civil class action precedents. And then on the merits, the court held that the policy violated the Fifth Amendment's due process clause. But the Supreme Court said no way, vacated that decision, um, holding that the case is moot because a dispute must exist at all stages of review and that the Ninth Circuit's reliance on class action precedents was misplaced. There's also an exception to the mootness doctrine for a, quote, controversy that is capable of repetition yet evading review, which is meant to deal with issues that come up repeatedly but are disposed of very quickly so they would never get to be decided under the mootness doctrine. But the court said that that exception doesn't apply here because the defendant's argument is that they will have the same problem the next time they commit a crime. Uh, So the court said, yeah, that doesn't count under this exception. The court also announced uh, two grants. So these are cases that they will take up next term. Uh, And I'm just going to briefly run through those. So the first is BNSF Railway Company versus Luce. And this is whether a railroad's payment to an employee for time lost from work is subject to employment taxes under the Railroad Retirement Tax Act. And the second case is Air and Liquid Systems versus DeVries. And the issue is whether products liability defendants can be held liable under maritime law for injuries caused by products that they did not make, sell, or distribute. Blockbusters. Yeah, really, really riveting (laughs) stuff. So we'll look forward to those cases as they unfold. We recently went to see the new RBG documentary in the middle of the workday, so... Thanks, John Malcolm. Fact checker John Malcolm. Yes. (laughs) And it was really well done. They interviewed the justice, some of her family, including her granddaughter who just graduated from law school, and former colleagues and friends who growing up called her Kiki, 
which I thought was super cute. Yeah, it, it covers a lot of ground in just 90 minutes, including her early career, uh, her time at law school, and her six Supreme Court arguments when she started the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU. It also goes in depth about her relationship with her husband, Marty, and her ascendance to the Supreme Court. And finally, the rise of RBG as a pop culture phenomenon. It started out with some lessons from her mother, which Ginsburg said number one was be a lady. Don't allow yourself to be overcome by useless emotions like anger. <laughs> and the second was to be independent. And I think she has, um, you know, really fulfilled her mother's advice. Definitely. Some some of the highlights uh, look for a young Elena Kagan in the footage from Ginsburg's Senate confirmation hearing. We were watching it and I nudged Tiffany and I said, wait, was that Kagan behind Joe Biden? And we looked it up after the fact. And and a young Elena Kagan indeed worked for Biden as counsel during the confirmation. Uh, There's also an interview with uh, Bill Clinton about his uh, the process of selecting Ginsburg for uh, for the SCOTUS vacancy. And uh, he he said, you know, he had an interview with her and they talked about the best way in this moment to make law, which is not exactly uh, what I think Supreme Court justices should be doing. But, you know, he was entitled to make his selection. But he said within 15 minutes of the interview, he knew that he would pick her. I thought it was really interesting. Um, it, the documentary talked about her husband Marty's involvement in her nomination. A nomination. So as a D.C. circuit judge, she was apparently, you know, she wasn't great at, like, promoting Self-promotion. herself. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was actually Marty who really pushed for her to be considered for the nomination, making calls and um, and calling on friends to help get her an interview. And I thought that was that was really cool. Yeah, the certainly the love story between Marty and Ruth is really what stood out for me in the documentary. There are some great clips of interviews with the two of them, and there's one where the interviewer asks, "You know what? What advice do you do you give your wife?" And Marty says, "Well, she knows not to give me advice about cooking, and I know not to give her advice about the law," <laughs> which was pretty funny. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really sweet just to see the way that she they looked at each other, and particularly. Um, you know, the admiration in her eyes when, when, uh, whenever they were interviewed together. And uh, it was really a, a beautiful marriage, it seems. And there, there's a real tearjerker moment um, when she's reading in, in the documentary. She reads a letter that Marty wrote for her when he was in the hospital dying. And it was just, it was very sweet. And, and overall, it really humanized the justice for me. Yeah, and I think that was the best part for me. A lot of times we tend to wrongly demonize people we disagree with. And it's always good to remind ourselves of the humanity of our opponents. And I think this was best highlighted by Ginsburg's notable friendship with Justice Scalia, which they talked a lot about in the documentary um, and showed clips. And I love when, you know, they're asking um, if Justice Scalia loves Justice Ginsburg. And he's like, what's not to love except her Opinions on the law, yeah. <laughs> um, which was which was great. And there was an interview with Ginsburg's uh, co-head of the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU, and she made a comment about how she didn't understand Ginsburg's friendship with the prominent conservative, and that she could never be friends with any right-wing nut job. And I just thought, you know, what a sad life to not be able to be friends with people you disagree with. And so I think it's a really beautiful example that Ginsburg and Scalia set in their in their friendship.
And, and definitely they had they had certainly bonded on the D.C. circuit before either of them came to the Supreme Court. And they really shared a love of opera. opera. And so they had mm-hmm. things outside of the law to talk about, which I think is key with um, across the aisle relationships. Yeah. But but that being said, we, we still don't like her jurisprudence. So for <laughs> most of the movie, I was like, I love Justice Ginsburg. Um, but then they read from some of her opinions and I remembered why I don't like most of her decisions. Um, But there was a cameo by my women's rights hero, George Mason law professor Helen Alvarez. If you haven't read her stuff, you really need to. She's just fantastic. She she is very wonderful. Yeah, it's true. Up until the part about Ginsburg's decisions, we were both thinking, you go, girl. Uh, <laughs> but then we were like, oh, wait, hold on. That's why we don't agree with Ginsburg. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm thankful for trailblazers like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor, because without women like them, Tiffany and I could not have the, the jobs that we have today. So thank you to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Next up, we're going to talk with Amy Howe from SCOTUS Blog. Amy Howe is a reporter who follows the Supreme Court. She writes for SCOTUS Blog and Howe on the Court. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Amy. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So we, we've talked about the RBG documentary. What did you think about it? I thought it was terrific. Um, I've seen it twice, actually. And the second time I took my two girls, who are 15 and 11, and they loved it. And I thought that the filmmakers did a really great job making it very accessible to people who are not lawyers or law students. And I also thought it really captured what I think, unless you know, there's a radical shift on the Supreme Court very, very <laughs> soon, is going to be Ruth Bader Ginsburg's real legacy, not what she did so much on the Supreme Court, but what she did before she was on the Supreme Court in terms of litigating all these women's rights cases. What was, what was your favorite part? I think my favorite part almost certainly was the moment when they have video of Justice Ginsburg watching video, uh, old family movies, of a young Marty Ginsburg. Mm -hmm. the, The love story was such a big part of the movie. He was so devoted to her and she to him. And it's the kind of marriage that would still be kind of remarkable today. And so to have it Uh, That kind of marriage for two people who met as freshmen and sophomores (laughs) at Cornell in the 1950s is really extraordinary. Yeah, it was very beautiful. I loved the part when she got out some of her jabot and was describing where she got them from, what she uses them for. Uh, I loved that part. (laughs) So switching gears a bit, you argued cases at the Supreme Court in 2008 and 2010. Can you tell us about those experiences? Sure. They were they were very different cases in many different ways in terms of the role that that I played in the case and you know the relationship with the client. Uh, in many Supreme Court cases today, including this one, you know, you kind of, the, the Supreme Court specialists essentially parachute in either after the the petitioner has gotten an unfavorable ruling in the lower courts or even in some cases after cert is granted. You don't have this sort of longstanding relationship with the client. And in the first case, United States versus Greenlaw, this was a case in which uh, our client, Mikey Greenlaw, had been convicted of various drug trafficking charges and was sentenced to something like 35 years in prison. And when he appealed his sentence to the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals said, no, we're going to uphold your sentence. And by the way, we noticed that the district judge made a mistake in sentencing you. Um, This other enhancement should apply. And so even though 
the federal government had not appealed that mistake, we're going to go ahead and add on 20 more years to your sentence. Um, And so that was the issue is essentially, can a a court of appeals do that? And the answer now is no, if the, the government doesn't cross appeal, it can't. But so, you know, Mr. Mr. Greenlaw is in prison somewhere. Um, I've never met him. I've still never met him. Um, and so you go and you you argue the case. We'd had the lawyer who argued in the case in the Court of Appeals work with us. Um, but Kevin Russell, who was my law partner at the time, actually did most of the briefing for reasons that are too complicated to explain here. And I'm also not sure 11 years later whether I actually remember what those <laughs> reasons were. Um, and so you know, it, was a, it was a fun case to argue but it was very different from the second case that I argued, which is a case called Abbott versus Abbott, was uh, the first case to come to the Supreme Court under an international child custody convention. My client, Tim Abbott, was a, a British citizen living in Chile with his U.S. citizen wife. Uh, they got divorced, and she brought their son back to the United States. And so what what we were trying to do was to get the son back to Chile so that they could have further custody proceedings there. And uh, Mr. Abbott was you know, obviously very invested in the case. And so you know, not only did we have many, many phone calls and emails back and forth with him, he came to the moot courts that we did out at Stanford with the team that was working on the case, came to the moot courts in D.C. before the oral argument, came to the oral arguments uh, and, you know, obviously had and it was not the same as having 20 years of, of your life at stake. It was but he was trying to get his child back. So very, very different experiences. They were also very humbling experiences. You know, I'd seen many, many oral arguments by then, either covering them for the, the, the blog or as a lawyer, I, because I was there watching a friend, watching a, a case that I'd been part of. Um, and you realize how hard it is and how easy, but how easy people like Paul Clement or Michael Dreeben, who argue cases on a regular basis, make it look. I mean, it really is the case that you, you get up there and you say a sentence and somebody jumps in at you. So do you think having argued cases at the Supreme Court has made you a better reporter on the Supreme Court? You know, the justices, and this is one. Of the, this is an argument that the justices use when they talk about whether or not oral arguments should be televised. They say the oral argument is only a small part of the case, and we, we, don't, we don't think the oral argument should be televised because we think that people folk would focus too much on the significance of the oral argument. And I don't agree with that as a reason not to televise the cases. I will say that I'm not sure that, you know, having done those two oral arguments you know, makes as much of a difference in my reporting as just sort of having the the breadth and the depth of the experience that I had litigating Supreme, case, Supreme Court cases for a long time. Um, one of the other interesting things about both of the cases that I did argue is that they were both cases, and the first one, even though it was a criminal case against the federal government, in which the United States government wound up being on, on our side, and I got to go to some of the moot courts uh, for people from the officers uh, from the office of the Solicitor General, and sort of see how the federal government lawyers prepare, and how extensive it is, and how you know, how meticulously thought through everything is before they get to the oral argument. And so I think sometimes that just does help me understand a little bit better what the lawyers for the government are doing when they're actually standing up there. You're half of a SCOTUS power couple. You and your husband, Tom Goldstein, started SCOTUS Blog, and he's also argued a number of cases at the Supreme Court. So do you have any ground rules uh, to keep your home life separate from your work life? The, the one really firm rule that we have you know, 
because I am, you know, am now regard myself as a full-time re- reporter and I don't cover his cases. And so we actually spend very little time, uh, if any, talking about the cases that he's actually working on and arguing to the point that you know, I'll be talking to a family member or a friend and it will come up that Tom has an oral argument next week and they'll say, what's the case about? And I have to give this really sort of weak answer. Well, I, I think it's about securities law, but but I'm not really sure. Um, other than that, you know, we this is something that we both really enjoy is sort of following the court, and so it kind of naturally spills over into our lives and our, our kids. As I, as I mentioned, we have two kids who are 11 and 15. You know, I think have kind of gotten used to it in the same way that any you know, no matter what your parents do, you wind up learning more, a little bit more about that. Um, You know, I think he travels a lot and we have two children. So a lot of our conversations are not really very substantive. They're more like, you know, if I drive the ice skating carpool, can you pick the other kid up at at (laughs) 620 in Friendship Heights um, kind of a thing? You know, we do have these days, we do sort of a weekly gut check. Like, what are you thinking about whether or not Justice Kennedy is going to retire this year? Um, (laughs) But and you know, in terms of the the home work life balance, you know, one of the nice things about being a Supreme Court reporter is that they're This is not like covering the White House or covering Congress, where there's a something going on. It seems like every two hours that that you need to spring into action for. Um, it tends to be pretty predictable, um, and then there are long periods of time. You know, five weeks between January and February, and then. July, August, September, where there's not a lot going on at the Supreme Court. And so I think my, my children have sort of, they're old enough now for the most part to have figured out, figured out that, you know, there's a, there's a give and take that, you know, I, I may be able to pick you up early from school to go and do something really fun on a weekday afternoon. But if on the way over the Supreme Court does something in the travel ban case, <laughs> you might have to spend the ride downtown like typing a blog post that I'm dictating to you. Um, <laughs> we've done that. So, That's great. Um, yeah, so I, I think they, they've, they've gotten used to it. So when you and Tom started SCOTUS blog, did you ever imagine it would get as big as it is today? I mean, I think of, you know, when regularly the hashtag waiting for Lyle would right. be trending yeah. on Twitter on decision days or – Another thing on Twitter, when people uh, mistook the SCOTUS blog account for the Supreme Court's Twitter account. Yes. <laughs> um, no, is is the, the short answer. We started the blog. The blog will have its 16th birthday in the fall. And the way that we keep track of this is because when Tom came to me and said, I think we should start a blog about the Supreme Court. I was seven months pregnant. <laughs> we were doing this like down to the studs renovation of our house at the time. And I thought it was a terrible idea. Um, but we, we went ahead and did it. But it really started out as a business development mm-hmm. uh, project for the law firm that Tom and I had together at the time. And the idea was that we didn't clerk at the Supreme Court. We didn't work in the Solicitor General's office. And this was a way to show off how much we know about the court. Um, and so you know, even probably several years later, when the blog had been established for quite a while, I mean, probably about five years later, I, I remember when the, the Heller versus District mm-hmm. of Columbia decision came down and we had 100,000 hits on the blog that day and we thought it was incredible. Um, so it, at, I still haven't completely internalized the idea that people read the blog. 
Um, <laughs> you know, but and but then you go somewhere and somebody acts like they know you because they've read the blog and they've read in particular the live blog, which is, tends to be a little bit chattier on big decision days. And you realize, oh, I guess people still do really read it. <laughs> Yeah, I love the the live blog, and we follow it in the office, and Tiffany always gets so irritated. She's like, how many times are people going to ask, is <laughs> XYZ coming down? Yeah. Is XYZ yes. case going to come out today, or what order are the justices going to announce their right. opinion? Yeah, that's that's one that always gets me. <laughs> well, but they got it. They, they tricked us a couple of weeks ago. There was mm-hmm. a, yes. a decision, a, a patent decision that came out. And I remember going back to the computer in the press room and typing, okay, well, we've heard from, you know, these more junior justices. So that means we can only get an opinion from these more senior justices. And then the next decision that came out was from a more junior justice because of the order in which they had to announce the two patent decisions, which this it's a very, so it can be a very collaborative experience in the press room because you, know, you get the opinions and then we all run back to our workstations and everyone is scratching their heads at the idea that, you know, it was from Alito, but then we went back to Gorsuch or whatever it was. And, you know, Brent Kendall from the Wall Street Journal is, sort of shouts out the explanation. And then, oh, okay. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, well, yeah. the one opinion wouldn't have made sense wouldn't have without, made, without, the, without that the other opinion. Or it would yeah. have given away the... Yeah. yeah. And it's particularly when you're talking about business cases, you never know when that extra minute or so could make a difference in the market or something. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so what have been the highlights in the roughly 15 years of the blog? I think the biggest highlight was certainly the day that the court announced the decision on the individual mandate in Obamacare. It was this perfect storm where it was such an enormous issue and they didn't decide it until the last day of the term. And so everybody knew that it had to be that day. <laughs> Um, and so we wound up having, I think, a million simul. We just started the live blog relatively recently for precisely this reason. We just uh, we had roughly a million simultaneous viewers on the live blog and had over five million during wow. the course of the day. And I got, you know, I got an email later on. This is again this idea that people feel like they know you from someone you know who was deeply uh, working was working pretty deeply in the healthcare field, and he was watching. The decision come down and he saw the reports on CNN or Fox and he, he said to me, he said, well, I said to my colleagues, let's wait and see what Lyle and Tom and Amy have to say about it. <laughs> our best um, friends. Our best friends. Um, so that was that was a lot of fun. Winning the Peabody Award for Electronic Media. We were the first blog to mm-hmm. do that. And then what I hadn't realized at the time, it was a, a big deal to win it. And then they have this big lunch in New York um, in one of those massive hotel ballrooms and they sort of present in order, and you realize, like, the, the person in front of me in line is Larry David. Um, <laughs> so you know, you, for, for people who don't normally move in those fields, you see, like, ooh, there's Robin Roberts, and she won a couple of awards that year. So that's pretty. it cool. was a lot of fun. So one final question uh, that we ask all of our guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? It would definitely be for me Justice Thomas um, because there's this incredible gap between, I think, the, the public perception of him. You know, he doesn't speak very often in oral arguments and what, like, unanimously, overwhelmingly, the sort of private perception is. This, this idea of somebody who's incredibly gregarious, who knows every single person who works in the Supreme Court building, 
Um, and I think it'd be fun to just you know sit and watch a football game with him and, and <laughs> hear what he has to say about the Cornhuskers. The Cornhuskers. Yeah, that's fine. The Nebraska game. If the Cornhuskers could play the University of North Carolina, that'd be ideal. But uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know whether that ever happens. <laughs> that would be a great conversation. Uh, so we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Notorious RBG edition. Excellent. Where we will try to stump our guest, Amy Howe. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, first question. What is RBG's first name? Ruth. So I thought that too. No? Her first name is actually Joan. Holy which, cow, I had no idea. I know, this was like earth shattering. Okay, so last night I'm I'm watching uh, Jeopardy. I do this every I knew night it had to husband. be a trick question the way you asked it, but yeah. still. Watching Jeopardy, yes. coming up with trivia questions, I go to RBG's Wikipedia page, and at the top Jenny. I see born uh, Joan Ruth Bader. I was like, hold on. How have I never heard that her first name is Joan? So okay. I Googled it, and I found a few news sites, CNN, a few others. Unless it's fake news, it is pretty widely reported that her actual birth name is Joan. Joan. Yeah, so you learn something okay. new every day. Well, I'm doing really off to a great start here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, second question. Which justice did Ginsburg replace on the Supreme Court? And we can give you a hint if it's helpful. I, I can narrow it down, and now I'm just trying to think of the timing. But it, was it Lewis Powell or Harry Blackman? It was not. It was Byron White. Oh, boy, I'm doing really well here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I guess uh, I think that means Gorsuch was a law clerk during her first term. Because he was hired sense? by White and then stayed on with Kennedy. So he would have been a law clerk. Was he hired by White and stayed on with Kennedy, or was he hired by White and shared? Shared, I guess. With uh, when uh, when I've read that he was shared, I assumed it meant that one was leaving and he stayed. Well, the retired the justices each get a clerk <gasps> oh. that, with whom they then share with a current justice. Oh well, we'll have to do some digging to so. see if he was shared or if he was passed on. We'll 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 okay. figure it out. Well. we'll figure it out. Okay, third okay. question. Uh, Ginsburg is known for feminizing her judicial robes by wearing jabot, which I love to say that word. Yes, I know. And it seems like she has one for every occasion. Now, she has one for when she announces her dissenting opinions. Can you describe what it looks like? It's white, I believe, and kind of looks like a, like a, a statement necklace would be my best description. <laughs> it does look like a statement necklace. But it's not white. It's it's black with okay. gold embroidery and gold stones. See, I'm never in the courtroom usually when they announce no. decisions, but I did see the movie and she did say this is. My yeah, decision. I love when she Boy, pulls I'm it out. She, you here. know, she's got her closet when she yes. has them all hanging, and she says, "This is my dissenting show." Yes. <laughs> okay, next up, the notorious RBG has become a pop sensation in recent years. There's even a character on SNL. What is the SNL? Ginsburg's catchphrase. The Ginsburn. Yes. Yes, yes finally. That's a Ginsburn. <laughs> and sometimes she says things like, that's a third degree Ginsburn. <laughs> I love it. I love Kate McKinnon, the actress that plays. And and it was funny in the documentary when Justice Ginsburg was watching clips oh, yeah. of these like, SNL skits and she thought it was hilarious. hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> okay, next question. Uh, Justice Ginsburg was the second female justice to join the Supreme Court. How many female justices has she said the court needs? 
nine. That is right. <laughs> I have a, a funny, quick story. I was doing a lecture on the court to my daughter's brownie troop. And you know, I'm old enough that I remember when Justice O'Connor came on the court and what a big deal it was. So I said, the Supreme Court has nine justices. This would have been a little, and three of them are women. And the girls erupted. They're like, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Okay, final question. Ginsburg is only the sixth justice to serve past her 85th birthday. Can you name two of the others? Uh, Justice John Paul Stevens. Yes. Yes. And Justice Douglas, I imagine. William Douglas, did he serve past his? No. No. But the others no, are. No, although he's the longest serving justice. The longest serving. Yes. Yeah. We'll have to double check yeah. that. Okay. But the others <laughs> yeah, are maybe. Roger Tawney, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Hugo Black, and Harry Blackman. Well, I think you did a pretty good job. Uh, you're being kind. <laughs> and thank you so much for joining that us was today. Fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.